So we had this whole thing typed up about how I was going to start this episode with a quick rest in peace to Trevor Moore. By the way, rest in peace to Trevor Moore. Rest in peace, Trevor Moore. One of the Moore. greatest to ever Absolute do it. Absolute king. Yeah. Um, and then... Just, just to, like, Trevor Moore, like, I've radicalized probably four of my friends by showing them, like, the kitty history video. Well, didn't I somewhat so radicalize you, you by showing you? Well, yeah, literally. Yeah. So you did it to me. Now I'm doing it to other people. So if you need to just, like, completely red pill your friends about the United States and its history that, you know, we as Canadians don't really get taught, but we're just like, oh, the U.S., they're on our side. Go and show them kitty history because yeah, it it's a great, like, summary in, like, five minutes, but not, like, a... You know, it's not a boring-ass video essay. That's for losers. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Kitty History by Trevor Moore. That's how you pay legend. Pay respect yeah. for this legend. Rest, rest in peace. Rest in peace to uh, the local sex bot. Yeah, absolutely, local sex bot. Um, and so, the other thing I was going to talk about is about some of the live-action casting for Avatar and that people who are mad about how they cast indigenous actors to play indigenous characters, people mad that they, quote, weren't dark enough are just being racist and... You can't Insane. apply blackness to indigenous people, which is in it, like that's in itself something that is incredibly racist. Uh, but oh, colorism or whatever. Anyways, those are both out of date because we had to delay recording of this episode so many times. Yeah. I look. All I'm gonna say is, uh, Bell Alliant had me fighting for my life out on the east coast of this country. <laughs> um, there is no reason why we need to leave like a significant portion of the country. Well. A portion of the country um, to its own devices. It's true. Uh, quite literally. Bell Alliant, get your shit together, please. Um, but yeah, so we are going... We haven't done a, a proper history episode. Well, unless you count our little chat. Yeah, by the way, if you're listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the one with Haley, the last Go episode, listen to that one. Turn this shit off. It's going to be trash. Go listen to that because that's the best thing we've ever done. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. But anyway, um, as I was saying, Haley, um, you know, besides our conversation with her, um, we haven't done a proper history episode in a while. I don't have our episode list in front of me because um, I'm not that much of a podcasting psycho. No. Um, but we haven't done this in a while. We've sort of we've been lacking a little bit. You know, we've done our interviews and. So we just want to give you guys some of the the OG content. You know, this is. Remember when we were gonna do twice a week? Well, we were doing twice a week, and then we did yeah, once exactly. a week, hour and a half episodes, and now we've I think finally settled on once a week, forty minutes, yeah. which is like actually a listenable podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Three hours of content from two Three, total losers yeah, we, every we, week. We gave you guys way too much slop, and then it got saturated. It was really so. quantity over quality. Today we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite, 100% accurate historian. That's right, baby. It's William Shakespeare. Let's go. The man himself. So, yeah, um, whatever cliche you want to attach to his name, if you want to call him the bard, we can release an, a version of this episode where anytime we go and chase Shakespeare, we just use like a different English teacher name for him. I um, love him. That will, that will be coming up on our, our upcoming Patreon um, that's a joke. We're not monetizing. Um, but anyway, we are going to be talking about um, specifically the Battle of Agincourt, but also, you know, 
who Henry V was, sort of a brief history of the British royal family before the parts that everyone knows. Before it was, you know, Diana getting JFK'd. Um, it was Henry's. Yeah, lots of lots so, of Henry's. Lots of, look, it's like the, the French had the French had their Charles. They also had Henry's Charles's. Yeah. Well that we're gonna get into that. And so did the Germans. Everyone yeah. had Henry's. They re- I mean that that rules. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so if you don't know, Shakespeare, I mean, everyone knows, you know, Hamlet and Macbeth and the only bad play he ever wrote, Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I think he, like, there's no way that he didn't, that he wrote that. Sorry. There's no way that that's the worst thing. No, goodness. No, no, no. The worst play that he He also wrote some Henry VI plays, which are not very good. Titus Andronicus is good, but very difficult to stage. Um, but I just, as a total partisan of Shakespeare, I love the guy. I hate Romeo and Juliet. Maybe because it's overdone. I mean, it is like, yeah, exactly. Like, it's the most, it's like the most commonly known Shakespeare play. And so it's like, everyone knows exactly how it's going to go. Like, not like scene for scene, but it's like, oh, this is this part. And this is how this part goes. Whereas like, even with Hamlet, it's hard to get sick of Hamlet, partially because Kenneth, because Kenneth Branagh rules. Mm. Um, and we're, you know, we're going to talk about the movie adaptation yeah. that he did at some point, but he, um, he owns and the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet was, I think it was the first, cause I think, was it our English teacher? Um, shout out Mr. Beard, if you're listening. No, 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 no. This um, was, uh, this was Miss Todd. We, Declan and or, I, yeah, for Ms. those Todd. who don't know, uh, we went to high school together. And so I was a big Shakespeare partisan. He was not, I don't think, but. In a, a few years, over a few years, uh, he was showing more and more Shakespeare and and loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been Shakespeare-pilled. If hell yeah. So Shakespeare, as well as writing, you know, those famous plays, uh, a bit off track there, he also wrote this thing called A History Cycle, or The History Cycle, um, which was a series of, not written in chronological order, but eventually that can be matched in chronicle, chronological order. Um, from Richard II to Henry VIII, uh, a series of plays about the kings of England, of course. The monarch at the time of Shakespeare was Elizabeth I, who precipitated unification between England and Scotland. So it was just England back then. Um, but he goes all the way from Richard II, uh, to, yeah, Henry VIII, um, which is quite a long time. It's from the 1300s to the 1500s. Um, so we want to talk about today, yeah, the Battle of Agincourt, sort of dunking on the French. We also want to talk about the play because it's got some interesting things. We're going to talk about the Hundred Years' War. I'm going to engage in a little bit of counterfactuals. But I, I just want to start with, you know, who this Henry V guy is. Um, because I feel like even though he's one of the most influential monarchs for the amount of time he had in history, let alone European or English history. Um, I also feel like he's one of the lesser known ones when you compare him to like, obviously Elizabeth II or Victoria or Elizabeth I or whatever, right? Henry VIII. Um, so Henry V was the son of, haha, Henry IV. Um, no way. So Henry IV was a lord with a weak link to the throne who had taken it in a coup. Essentially, there was this guy, Richard II, 
who was king. Uh, he was not very good at it. He wanted to be an absolutist, but he also didn't really want to rule. Uh, he was more interested in like doing arts than going out and conquering. Uh, which basically means that he isolated his lords, but didn't build up his own power base. And so eventually they just got rid of him. Um, and he was killed uh, a year or two later. So Henry Bolingbroke became uh, Henry IV. Um, and uh, so they were both, both Henry IV and this king he cooed, Richard II, were of the House of Plantagenet, uh, which was like the first serious stable ruling dynasty of, of England since William the Conqueror. Um, although they were a branch of cousins called the Lancasters, which would be in and out of power during the Wars of the Roses, uh, to another branch known as the Yorkists. That is, until the Lancasters won and united the families into, of course, legendary Tudors. Thank Henry VIII right, or Elizabeth so, I. Yeah, so, reportedly, um, Henry IV was... How do, I mean, he was gentle. He didn't want... He didn't have a great claim to the throne. He didn't... You know, it was... If you take over in a coup, you have to be very careful to keep the people on your side. Um, and so, you know, he had a fragile claim to the throne, so he didn't try and do any sort of sweeping reforms. I mean, he was content to sit there and, you know, just be king, which, fair enough, it seems like a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, but Henry V, on the other hand, would be an entirely different beast. Um, as we're going to get into, he... He really wanted things to change. He wanted... <laughs> yeah. He wanted to fucking own the French. Yeah, he was probably one of the greatest warrior kings of all time. Um, yeah, yeah, so at the time, English was Catholic, and when he was a crown prince, Henry flirted with a proto-Protestant movement known as the Lollards. Um, but when he ascended to the throne, he took his duty as sort of the representative of God in England, again, divine right of kings. He really believed this... in his divine right. All these amazing throwbacks um, as a representative, seriously, and he became an insanely devout Catholic who took mass multiple times a day, which, you know, I don't even think uh, the crypto fascist Elizabeth Brunig does that. <laughs> Shut so. the fuck up. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, OK. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> oh, um, God. This complete shift in, you know, his demeanor and people that sort of knew him as, you know, a. Uh, an, a regular prince straight to, you know, devout Catholicism sort of made people theorize that maybe, he, you know, he's making up for something. Maybe this is sort of the Trotskyist to neoconservative pipeline of its time mm -hmm. where you, you switch over to a tone, you go extra hard in the, you know, reaction and conservatism in order to atone for your youth. But this was sort of just a theory. I mean, it can't be true because his, both his political and his military career is well-documented outside of Shakespeare. And it was Shakespeare that sort of popularized this narrative that Henry V was, you know, uh, as, as we kids say, Mr. Bitches in his youth. And, you know, it, it's an interesting story if you're Shakespeare so why not write it in? Especially if it's sort of the, the word around town that you're going to write into your Yeah, play. so Shakespeare has... It's called the Henriad Trilogy. Um, and it's two Henry IV plays and one Henry V play. Although they're really all about Henry V. Um, because all Henry IV does in his plays are die. Um, he's oh, dying the entire okay, time, oh. and then he dies at the end of the second Henry IV. Um, but essentially, in the course of these plays, you see Henry IV... 
I saw a really good version with um, Tom Hiddleston as, as Henry V, or Prince Hal at that point. Yeah, be a, essentially a really irresponsible party guy, uh, and then over time, because of his father's weak claim on the throne, he has to put down this big rebellion in the north of England uh, by this guy, Henry Hotspur. Um, and he sort of learns to be responsible, and then at the very end, he gives up all his partying, and he, he sort of rebuts and spits on, uh, metaphorically, his his party friends. Uh, and then when you see him in Henry V, yeah, he's a very devout guy who uh, goes off and does some incredible fighting uh, for England. Um, so, yeah, uh, he was also a ridiculously good soldier and general. Um, he successfully put down a Welsh revolt, the last real Welsh revolt, and a knight's revolt by Sir Henry Percy while he was prince. Um, he was very charismatic uh, and loved throughout the kingdom, which was most of Britain except for Scotland at that point. He was especially loved uh, in Wales, where his own popularity was kind of key to defeating the revolt. Um, right, so because he also inherited more than just England, as I mentioned, large parts of Ireland, even small parts of France, like Calais. Um, however, as Declan mentioned, Henry was very devout. He believed thoroughly uh, in his own divine right to rule, so he made it his life's mission to retake the land his ancestors held. Right. France. If he was on Twitter, if he was on Twitter today, he would be one of those like restore Europa guys, right? No, because like, he was like, cool. Specifically, like return to tradition, um, but it's like all like British architecture. Oh, that rocks. No, because the thing is, is right, is that it would more be like if your great grandfather had such had a really nice house, and you didn't have the house anymore, but like still there could be a legal argument to be made that you had, that the house was yours, and so what you decided to do was just, like, buy a gun and go into the house and yeah. kill everybody and take it. Um, because... No, you go in, you go in, and you kill 200 people to get the house. <laughs> yeah. If we're, if we're gonna go with ratios here, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, before the Plantagenet uh, dynasty, um... The kings of England had held, you know, over half of the land that makes up what is now France. I mean, it can be really hard to discern exactly because, you know, France is a social construct. Um, but, you know, as most of us know, Europe, the Europe that's around today on maps is, is not the same as the Europe of, you know, the 1500s or 1400s. Yeah. It, it, they, they love to invade each other. And so... Apart from Calais and the other, you know, some other areas in what is now France, most of this land had sort of fallen back to the French, you know, Normans, whatever you want, to, whatever French, name you want I to guess, smack yeah. on. Yeah, the, the French at this stage. Um, but anyway, he believed that he had, yeah, the legal right to the land and, you know, through dynastic claims, the throne of France. So Henry V said, why shouldn't I go for this? I mean, I am god's sort of appointed ruler you know why why should i not invade france yeah um, it's also important to note that uh i just want to add this like this was in the series so this was in the middle of the hundred years war um and the hundred years war was not actually a 116 year long war it was like three separate wars um yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like calling 
the Afghanistan situation, the war in Afghanistan, but like the hundred year Afghan yeah, war. Yeah, exactly. Starting in nineteen nineteen like, when they lose to Britain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nineteen nineteen Afghanistan when they loses what, to when Britain. When they what? Yeah, they did. When they what to they Britain? Lost. Nin- the English lo- the British lost the first um war against Afghanistan and then they won the next two. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um Damn, putting up a triple. I know. So the British or the English rather could not have actually won the Hundred Years War. Not at all. Like the war was, like, fundamentally not a war that could be won because it was funded by the nobles. The nobles had to go out and fight, but it was not for their benefit. It was for the benefit of the crown. So this is not a, a sustainable situation, right? Like, if you're a lord in England, all you are doing is giving your money and your soldiers, right, as feudalism, to uh, the crown. You're not really going to get any money apart from the stuff that you plunder, Um and you're not going to get any more power. In fact, you're going to get less power because more lords are going to join the English court. So even the the English lords in the parts of France that they held, uh, it was not to their benefit. It was for the benefit of the crown, but they were the ones who had to fight it. Um, the English army was, in terms of technology um, and strategy and even just determination and skill, uh, very well, several decades ahead of the French, but it was very limited in numbers, and of course, not every king that the English had was a Henry V, right? Yeah. Beyond that, well, the, especially in so, the South, even if, as Henry eventually sort of won, per se, which we'll get to, uh, lords were not just going to accept an English king, even if it was legal and legitimate. But of course, the English didn't know this, and so over the course of the war, they would come very close to victory, and the closest does under Henry. I mean, that's the crazy thing about wars of imperialism is that, again, they just feel natural to the the country. You just kind of, yeah, it's like, why, you know, again, going back to the Afghanistan-America example, just to be a little Mm. bit topical, it's like, why shouldn't we go and invade this place and make sure that we're setting up, you know, institutions and human rights and everything? No, we can. Oh, and then, and then, well, they could, but they also wanted to knock over the opium farms and they really can't do both so they just said ah fuck it yeah we're gonna go but it was it just it was like a natural thing like oh here's a place with bad human rights you know um fundamentalists that we want to take out national anthem so we'll just none them. music yeah. is outlawed <laughs> you know what maybe they're onto maybe something. They're on something no more claro but... no more olivia rodrigo <laughs> put on the burka. just vibes just vibes. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of... It's like a History Channel history fact that, like, oh, the the English army was miles ahead of France in the Hundred Years' War. They had the longbows um, that could punch through the armor of the French, which, I mean, that the, imagine being, like, the, the first guy to watch your armor just get fucking... But it's, like, hardly like, even true. Like, they could get through the joints, and they did, but, like, the actual armor, they couldn't... I want to talk about... Because there are a lot of misconceptions about how the English won at Agincourt. Yeah, so that's that's why I said, like, it's a, it's a history channel fact. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, the Russians had the worst tanks in World War Two, Which is just not true at all. Well, okay. Anyways. But uh, in, in any case, not to not to go full World War Two yeah. kid. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Um, yeah, like propaganda especially in in the wake of this victory the french have actually sort of of secured the narrative yeah so in the middle of the war 
they were but it, yeah in the middle of the war the english are trying to get whatever victories they can and well on its own agincourt is you know an incredible story it's also you know oh the the french destroyed the uh you know they went after the women and children mm. and the French got owned by our, our superior technology. I want so, to talk about that later. I think you and I might have different perspectives on this. But it's okay. Maybe. I guess Yeah, we'll so Henry first crossed the English Channel in 1415. Uh, he laid siege to a town called Herfleur, and he successfully captured it. Um, but it wasn't as fast as he would have liked, so winter was approaching fast, and he decided to travel. Instead of staying in Herfleur or going after another city, he decided to travel to the better fortified Calais, and leave a smaller force in Herfleur, rather than just keeping his whole army there, right? Um, but while he was moving to Calais, uh, a, a much, much larger French army intercepted the English and attacked them at this field in the middle of nowhere called Agincourt. So I want to explain... Right, and... Oh, go ahead. I was, when we were watching the movie, um, the, the Kenneth Branagh adaptation of the play... Um, you pointed this out that, like, they don't fight like this anymore. It's not like, oh, we see you, but we're going to let you know that we see you, and we'll we'll meet in the middle of this wide-open field, tomorrow. and we'll see who makes yeah, it. Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. yeah. Like, meet me after school at 3 p.m., and then, you know, you throw down, and whoever wins, wins, and then yeah. that's how it's settled. So, it, it's true. Like, it's chivalric or whatever, right? Um, yeah. but I want to talk, so first of all, uh, the English had 6,000 to 18, to, to one, 8,000 men, about five-sixth archers, and about one-sixth dismounted men-at-arms, like knights, in heavy armor. The French had, uh, 25,000, um, about 10,000 men-at-arms, knights, about 4,000 to 5,000 archers and crossbowmen and about to 10,000 uh, mounted and armed servants, essentially like light infantry, light cavalry, compared to the heavy cavalry. So, yeah, these uh, this idea of, like, mud um, uh, the, and, and longbows I want to talk about. So, yeah, uh, this idea that the longbows could pierce the French armor. Not true per se. If you're in one of these, like, heavy, heavy armor, uh, you can stand up to... It might go into it, but it won't kill you. Uh a big arrow uh, from a longbow. What the longbow could do that previous bows could not do was hit joints uh, from a distance uh, and also be dangerous for, for example, your eye holes uh, from a distance. So your soft armor and the holes in your armor were at risk, and that factors in in a second. Uh, also this idea that people were getting stuck in the mud, not so, because there actually was uh, a clash of arms uh, and the uh, British, again, so the English, it's it's important to note, had men-at-arms, like knights as well, and they did not have the same issue. So, yeah, the French have this much larger force. They attack the English, who hold a defensive posture, uh, and so they shower the, the French with arrows from their longbows. They have their knights in a sign of, kind of pincer formation, um, and so the French, because of the arrows, they can't use their horses. Um, and so their men-at-arms have to get off and charge about 100 meters uh, to our Americans. That's about 300 feet um, across this field. And it is a muddy field. 
it had rained before, it had been, you know, deseeded and tilled, so it was very muddy, uh, which did exhaust them. But this is important as to the way a heavy infantry charge works. So you are not, when you are charging with heavy infantry and at this point, trying to stab other people. You are trying to crush them, right? The way these work is by weight. So you have your very heavy armored people in the front, you have a large row of them, and they just push. Everybody behind somebody pushes them. Um, and so when you're in the mud, yes, this becomes exhausting, especially when you have to keep your head down uh, to avoid English arrows. Um, and so, yes, commonly people fell over and got trampled or drowned in the mud because they couldn't get up. And by the time they got to the English line, uh, they were exhausted and they just got hacked apart by either uh, English men-at-arms or English uh, archers with, like, knives and such, which were much, much uh, more maneuverable and not Yeah, tired. the guys the guys that weren't wearing, like, however, like, 80 60 pounds, pounds about, of armor. 40 to 60 pounds, yeah. Yeah. The guys that weren't wearing that much armor trying to... I mean, think, think about it, like a goalie trying to fist fight somebody in all of their equipment mm -hmm. like a hockey yeah. goalie like it's you know now if you try and punch that hockey less... goalie you're like it's not gonna work yeah but you can get around them like you know you can flank them and it's, it's them, hard yeah. as that goalie to sort of keep keep track of everything that's why you. usually um, when you get full team fights the goalies go and fight each other actually that is rare that is well, it's, very, i know but that's so are full team fights like bench clearing the I've had one chance at a goalie fight in my entire career, and the only reason I didn't do it was because we were up in the playoff series, and I knew that if I went and did it, I would get suspended, yeah. and then if we go on to keep going, I wouldn't be allowed to play the rest of the Yeah, year. fair enough, then. Well, good but, for you. Eh, yeah. But yeah, so this is not a matter of, oh, they were screwed by the mud. This is not a matter no. of, oh, it was their heavy armor or the longbows, because everything apart from the longbows that the English had, as the French had, uh, that weighed them down, so did the English. The English just used their men-at-arms better. They used the mud better. It was just a matter of superior tactics. Um, so, yeah, there are some, some misconceptions. There's a part that is in the play, but has been left out until very recently that I, I wanted to mention to you. So, obviously, the French, as they realize they're beginning to lose, attack the English train, uh, which a baggage train, which is basically um, where... Henry's personal treasures and his crown and stuff are held. Uh, it's where the peasants, uh, some wives, um, and like the sort of civilian contingents of the army are held. So the French is kind of a cowardly thing. They just attacked it and, and slaughtered it. Um, it might have happened at the start of the battle. Most people think it happened at the end. Um, but there's this part that is a scene in Shakespeare, in the Shakespeare play, but that hasn't been shown much until recently because a lot of people don't really know what to do with it um and i didn't mention this to you at the time because i wanted to sort of see your reaction on the pod but there's a part oh, in great. the battle where so they've captured thousands of prisoners right and there are weapons all around on the ground the english have captured prisoners there are weapons all around on the ground in fact they've captured more prisoners than they have soldiers and so Henry realizes that if these prisoners decide to rise up and try and escape, they might well be able to slaughter the English, right? The way the English won that battle was through superior organization, 
And in an unorganized fight, when they're outnumbered like that, you lose. And this time. Right. Also, folks, uh, sidebar here. Speaking of organization, uh, October 15th, general strike. Yeah. Um, so what Henry does is he orders the execution of all of these prisoners. Like thousands of Thousands uh, of, of prisoners. Which was not a crime, per se. Um, but... That's that's an interesting way to put execution. Well, I was about to say, it's contrary to chivalry. It wasn't illegal, because there's no international law, but it was contrary yeah. to chivalry. Thank God. Um, and it's also contrary to mo- good monetary policy, because usually you keep valuable hostages like knights and lords, and you ask ransom for them. Uh, so it was purely a decision of Henry... Uh, and he threatened to hang everybody who didn't obey his order. Uh, so several thousand French prisoners died. Um, does that does that get factored into the casualty count? Yes. Like when people say, "Oh, look at all of these fucking Frenchies that got owned." That factors into um, how many are counted as dead. If you're looking at the Wikipedia page, I'm honestly not sure. But so. I didn't know that, obviously. Um, Is that in the play? It is, but it's not in the Kenneth Branagh showing, because up until very recently, people haven't really known how to approach this. Because usually in the play, Henry is seen as a very heroic figure, especially within the Henriad, when he goes from, like, a party guy to this, like, great and honorable warrior, right? Like, you remember the St. Crispin's Day speech, you know, the Band of Brothers thing, where he's like... Everybody who fights here is going to be my brother forever. And if you want to go home, go ahead. You won't. We won't stop you. But you're not going to be my brother. And for the rest of time, all of our survivors uh, will look at our scars and will think back to this day and will be proud of our honor that we gained here. Right. And so to also have Henry slaughtering prisoners is not. It's certainly an interesting originally, like an original narrative choice. Yeah, um, like, I think it's, it's, it's a sort weird of notable though because I don't know if you remember really make, like, Henry's first big monologue of the war at Herfleur, when he basically urges the French governor to surrender, uh, the governor of the thing, uh, and he, I got some quotes here. Um, he demands the French surrender and he threatens literally like rape and pillage if they do not. He says. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand, shall range, with conscience white as hell, mowing like grass, your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. Um, which, you know, is not... He's basically saying, I can't control my soldiers, so if you don't surrender now, men, they'll go in there will, and they're gonna rape your virgins. Men will literally, men will literally rape and pillage the uh, the city of Harf, or the town of Harflor instead of going to therapy. Yeah, it's true. But I think this is actually kind of interesting um, in the play, right? Like, he says this, but he also executes an old friend of his for stealing from a church, right? He says this and, ex- and executes the prisoners, um, but in his famous St. Crispin's Day speech, he speaks of patriotism and glory, right? He says, And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by, St. Crispin's Day, shall ne'er go by, from this day till the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We happy few, we few, sorry, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, 
be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap while they speaks that fought with us on St. Crispin's Day. Right? And so I think Henry V himself is sometimes seen as an ambivalent representation of the sort of stage Machiavel, who combines an apparent sincerity and honor with also a willingness to use deceit and like incredible force and brutality to achieve his ends. Um, right. Well, that's like a common. That's a very common literary trope that you see everywhere. Like the, the oh he you know he believes in these higher moral codes, but you know sometimes you just got to do what you have to do. Yeah. Which is sort of interesting Which, because nowadays that's sort of seen as like, like usually villains nowadays are ideological, right? It's not just yeah. someone who's like, I want power. Whereas Shakespeare, Henry is clearly not a villain. At least, no. at least in, in Branagh's interpretation, he's definitely not, right? He's like a good guy. Um, but here, like he is sort of, he's seen as a good guy who was completely willing to stoop to the lowest levels of evil to executing prisoners, threatening rape. Obviously, he doesn't actually partake, but and no one does, but he threatens it, uh, to, to achieve his goals, his own personal power. Um, so with the war crimes, interestingly enough, uh, the United States Supreme Court did um, litigated it. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was involved as well as Samuel Alito, uh, and... Can you imagine, like, like they're litigating, like, this, and then, like, the next day they have to, like, make a decision on, like, a murder trial or something? Yeah. Like, they go, like... <laughs> yeah, so they found him guilty of war crimes. Um, they essentially decided that, obviously, that although there was no law at the time... They're like evolving standards of civil society, and you can't just say that it wasn't wrong at the time it was. Um, although there was an audience vote, and it was too close to call. Uh, although there was a, also a French military tribunal done uh, that found him innocent, which I think is actually very interesting, right? Um, so. I, I guess they didn't bother asking the British because they already would have known the answer. Yeah, yeah, he he was perfect. He was our he was our special boy. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I want to see. Uh, I think that so yeah, the Global War Crimes Tribunal word that Henry's war was legal. No non-combatant was killed unlawfully, and that Henry bore no criminal responsibility for the death of the POWs. But yeah, the. The French Civil Liberties Union uh, had sort of instigated this uh, tribunal and then tried to sue in civil court uh, after it found Henry innocent, and the judge concluded that he was bound by his conclusions of law and ruled in favor of the English, and the Court of Appeals affirmed without opinion. So I guess they could take it up to the Supreme Court, but that would be stupid. Um, which I think is kind I of I think they should. I would, you know what? Um, we're gonna put a link in the in the description for a, a GoFundMe to litigate the actions of King Henry V. We will be attempting to hold him accountable. Mm. Um, you know, we're we're doing our best. We're listening and amplifying uh, French voices. And yeah, I mean, one last little fun fact that we've got here is um, during the legal battle for the U.S. presidential election of two thousand. You know the it was in Florida. I don't know. It was 
before we were alive. It was when Bush stole the election. That, yeah, exactly. When when he started the steal. Um, yeah, the the vote recount. Members of the legal team for George W. Bush, you know, the dream team. Um, the eventual victor of the case. All these fucking nerds. These these nerd ass lawyers all joined arms together during like a a break in deliver I believe in deliberation, um, and recited this St. Crispin's Day speech all together to motivate themselves. Which, you know, as far as people with ties to Bush locking arms, chanting and doing things, um, I I think I'd prefer they be like quoting Shakespeare than like jacking off into Geronimo's skull. Oh my god! But um, yeah, crossbones guys, yeah. You know, it's, it's, they're just nerds. Yeah. And like conservatives love this shit. They love that, you know, oh, we, you know, if you fight with me, that means you're my brother. And you know, that, that bond will never be broken. Um, you know, unless we're two Navy SEALs who have conflicting reports of Osama bin Laden's assassination. <laughs> <But> anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but in any case, yeah, I mean, this sort of pop history doesn't really go away. You know, you get History Channel documentaries now, and you got Henry V back then. It doesn't change. There's always going to be people who want to sit down and say things like, oh, well, did you know that, you know... <laughs> In World War One, the Germans could have won if they had just built more tanks. I watched this documentary. In World War One, the Germans oh. could have won if, 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 uh, oh, fucking, oh, if they uh, attacked France, if they didn't do any offensive operations against France until they beat Russia. Damn. Why didn't they think of that? Yeah. Um. So. For the actual Henry, yeah, he wins this battle. And so in the play, he wins the battle, and then, like, immediately after he has won the war, the French king makes him heir, uh, and he marries the French king's daughter. Uh, dude's rock. Dude's rock. Um, and Brana added all sorts of cute stuff because it was his wife that he had playing the French king's daughter, and so he wanted to make her, like, a fun and cute character, and I, I thought that was kind of an adorable addition to the play, even though That's really he sweet. eventually he... cheated on her with Helena Bonham Carter and they got a divorce. Um, the, uh, in, in reality, Agincourt did destroy, like, the entire French army, um, but Henry would go on to, like, march around all of France, he took Paris, he took Normandy, he took everything, and at, about two years later, um he that happened he married the french king's daughter well he courted her and then married her like she actually wanted to marry him and he had the throne signed over to him uh but uh, it didn't last obviously because france isn't part of england uh because henry had uh dysentery uh he had a mild case of dysentery but then during an enforcement operation in the south he was marching around in full armor in 35 degree weather 35 Celsius. So he got very bad heat stroke, and combined with the dysentery, he died. He died two months before the French king. Uh, and so basically the two of them dying so soon together, and Henry only having a kid who was like six or something like that, not even, uh, essentially collapsed the whole thing. 
all the French were like, alright, well, we're fighting again, and you're not our king. So, uh, the Hundred Years' War started up again, and of course, eventually, the French would just win. Um, so Henry technically won the war. Uh, he just got owned by... He shot himself to he sh- death. He, yeah, he shot himself to death. Like, I think we need we need more guys, um, obviously, have not any, any resemblance to any real-life characters. Um, it's purely coincidental. We need more people who go off and you know invade other countries to just start like dying of really embarrassing things does um, caitlin bennett themselves I think to that... death god damn it man we're going off this episode this one's a banger all right i think uh, uh I, I think that's uh, about what i've got for material and we've hit 40 minutes so if you got anything else you want to yeah, say say it i i don't really have much to add i mean it's sort of an interesting um it's always interesting to look at the difference between sort of the Shakespearean, you know, big air quotes here, history plays and what actually happened. Yeah, like Richard III, for example. Yeah, exactly. So Which it's... Which will do. Yeah, obviously. That, that one's a fucking classic. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting to take a sort of deep dive into what really went on and not just the sort of History Channel version mm-hmm. of it. Um, so I think... Uh, until next time, I've been Declan. I've been Malcolm, and we'll be at you with the next episode much sooner than the gap in this one, I might add. Yes, we, we promise. I think we'll try and record we will be, on Tuesday we will be again. Better. Try and get back to a schedule. Or something. Yeah, I, we'll, we'll see how that yeah. works. Alright. <laughs> no, no, no promises. promises. Until then, yeah, I'm Malcolm, and we will see you next time. <laughs>